13. On, and this characteristic compensates in some degree and for a period at least for the weakness of their wise inherent in the narrow territorial base. Every race, people, and state has had the history of progress from a small to a large area. All have been small in their youth. The bit of land covered by Roma Quadrata has given language, customs, laws, culture, and a faint strain of Latin blood to nations now occupying half a million square miles of Europe. The Arab Inundation, which flooded the vast domain of the Caliphs, traced back to that spring of ethnic and religious energy which welled up in the arid plain of Mecca and the Arabian oases. The worldwide maritime expansion of the English-speaking people had its starting point in the lowlands of the Elba. The makers of empire in northern China were cradled in the small highland valley of the Wei River. The little principality of Moscow was the nucleus of the Russian Empire. Penetration into a people's remote past comes always upon some limited spot which has nurtured the young nation, and reveals the fact that territorial expansion is the incontestable feature of their history. This advance from small to a large characterizes their political area, the scope of their trade relations, their spheres of activity, the size of their known world, and finally the sway of their religions. Every religion in its early stages of development bears the stamp of a narrow origin, traceable to the circumscribed habitat of the primitive social group, or back of that to the small circle of lands constituting the known world whence it sprang. First it is tribal, and makes a distinction between my God and thy God, but even when it has expanded to embody a universal system, it still retains vestigial forms of its narrow past. Jerusalem, Mecca and Rome remain the sacred goal of pilgrimages while the vaster import of a monotheistic faith and the higher ethical teaching of the brotherhood of man had encircled the world, when religion, language and race had spread, in their wake comes the growing state. Everywhere the political area tends gradually to embrace the whole linguistic area of which it forms a part, and finally the yet larger race area. Only the diplomacy of United Europe has availed to prevent France from absorbing French-speaking Belgium or Russia from incorporating into her domain that vast Slav region extending from the Drava and Danube almost to the Gulf of Corinth, now parceled out among seven different states, but bound to the Muscovite Empire by ties of related speech, by race and religion, the detachment of the various Danubian principalities from the uncongenial dominion of the Turks, though a dismemberment of a large political territory and a seeming backward step, can be regarded only as a leisurely preliminary for a new territorial alignment. History's movements are unhurried, the backward step may prepare for the longer leap forward. It is impossible to resist the conclusion that the vigorous, reorganized German Empire will one day try to incorporate the Germanic areas found in Austria, Switzerland and Holland, throughout the life of any people, from its feudal period in some small locality to its well-rounded adult era marked by the occupation and organization of a wide national territory. Gradations in area mark gradations of development and this is true whether we consider the compass of their commercial exchanges, the scope of their maritime ventures, the extent of their linguistic area, the measure of their territorial ambitions, or the range of their intellectual interests and human sympathies. From land to ethics, the rule holds good. Peoples in the lower stages of civilization have contracted spatial ideas, desire and need at a given time only a limited territory. Though they may change that territory often, they think in small linear terms had a small horizon, a small circle of contact with others, a small range of influence, only tribal sympathies, they had an exaggerated conception of their own size and importance, because their basis of comparison is fatally limited, with a mature, widespread people like the English or French, 
all this is different, they have made the earth their own, so far as possible, just because of this universal tendency towards the occupation of ever larger areas and the formation of vaster political aggregates, in making a sociological or political estimate of different peoples, we should never lose sight of the fact that all racial and national characteristics which operate towards the absorption of more land and impel to political expansion are of fundamental value. A ship of state manned by such a crew has its sails set to catch the winds of the world. Territorial expansion is always preceded by an extension of the circle of influence which a people exerts through its traders, its deep-sea fishermen, its picturesque marauders and more respectable missionaries, and earlier still by a widening of its nearer geographical horizon through fortuitous or systematic exploration. The Northmen visited the coasts of Britain and France first as pirates, then as settlers. Norman and Breton fishermen were drawing in their nets on the Grand Bank of Newfoundland thirty years before Cartier sailed up the St. Lawrence. Japanese fishing boats preceded Japanese colonists to the coasts of Yizo. Trading fleets were the foreigners of the Greek colonies along the Black Sea and Mediterranean, and of Phoenician settlements in North Africa, Sicily and Spain. It was in the wake of trapper and fur trader that English and American pioneer advanced across our continent to the Pacific, just as in French Canada Jesuit priest and voyager opened the way for the settler. Religious propaganda was yoked with greed of conquest in the campaigns of Cortez and Pizarro. Modern statesmen pushing a policy of expansion are alive to the diplomatic possibilities of missionaries endangered or their property destroyed. They find a still better asset to be realized on territorially in enterprising capitalists settled among the weaker people, by whom their property is threatened or overtaxed, or their trade interfered with. The British acquisition of Hong Kong in 1842 followed a war with China to prevent the exclusion of the English opium trade from the Celestial Empire. The annexation of the Transvaal resulted from the expansion of English capitalists to the Rand Mines. Much as the advance of the United States flag to the Hawaiian Islands followed American sugar planters thither, American capital in the Caribbean states of South America has repeatedly tried to embroil those countries with the United States government, and its increasing presence in Cuba is undoubtedly ominous for the independence of the island, because with capital go men and influence, when the foreign investor is not a corporation but a government. The expanding commercial influence looks still more surely to tangible political results, because such national enterprises have at bottom a political motive, however much overlaid by an economic exterior. When the British government secured a working majority of the Suez Canal stock, it sealed the fate of Egypt to become ultimately a province of the British Empire. Russian railroads in Manchuria were the well-selected tool for the Rusificatayon and final annexation of the province. The weight of American national enterprise in the Panama Canal Zone sufficed to split off from the Colombian Federation a peripheral state, whose detachment is obviously a preliminary for eventual incorporation into a United States domain. The efforts of the German government to secure from the Sultan of Turkey railroad concessions through Asia Minor for German capitalists has aroused jealousy in financial and political circles in St. Petersburg and prompted a demand from the Russian Foreign Office upon Turkey for the privilege of constructing railroads through Eastern Asia Minor. Beyond the home of a people lies its sphere of influence or activities, which in the last analysis may be taken as a protest against the narrowness of the domestic habitat. It represents the larger area which the people wants and which in course of time it might advantageously occupy or annex. It embodies the effort to embrace more varied and generous natural conditions whereby the struggle for subsistence may be made less hard. Finally, it is an expression of the law that for peoples and races the struggle for existence is at bottom a struggle for space.
Geography sees various forms of the historical movement as the struggle for space in which humanity has forever been engaged. In this struggle the stronger peoples had absorbed ever larger portions of the Earth's surface. Hence, through continual subjection to new conditions here or there and to a greater sum total of various conditions, they gain in power by improved variation, as well as numerically by the enlargement of their geographic base. The Anglo-Saxon branch of the Teutonic stock has, by its phenomenal increase, overspread sections of whole continents, drawn from their varied soils nourishment for its finest efflorescence, and thereby has far outgrown the Germanic branch by which, at the start, it was overshadowed. The fact that the British Empire comprises area code to 8615000 square kilometers or exactly one-fifth of the total land area of the Earth, and that the Russian Empire contains over one-seventh, are full of encouragement for Anglo-Saxon and Slav but contain a warning to the other peoples of the world, the large area which misleads a primitive folk into excessive dispersion and the dissipation of their tribal powers, offers to an advanced people, who in some circumscribed habitat have learned the value of land, the freest conditions for their development, a wide, and obstructed territory, occupied by a sparse population of wandering tribes capable of little resistance to conquest or encroachment, affords the most favorable conditions to an intruding superior race. Such conditions the Chinese found in Mongolia and Manchuria, the Russians in Siberia, and European colonists in the Americas, Australia and Africa, almost unlimited space and undeveloped resources met their land hunger and their commercial ambition. Their numerical growth was rapid, both by the natural increase reflecting an abundant food supply, and by accessions from the home countries. Expansion advanced by strides, in contrast to the scarefree, easy development in a new land. Growth in old countries like Europe and the more civilized parts of Asia means a slow protrusion of the frontier. Made at the cost of blood, it means either the absorption of the native people, because there are no unoccupied corners into which they can be driven, or the imposition upon them of an unwelcome rule exercised by alien officials. Witness the advance of the Russians into Poland and Finland, of the Germans into Poland and Alsace-Lorraine, of the Japanese into Korea, and of the English into crowded India. The rapid unfolding of the geographical horizon in a young land communicates to an expanding people new springs of mobility, new motives for movement out and beyond the old confines, new goals holding out new and end of benefits. Life becomes fresh, young, hopeful, old checks to natural increase of population are removed, emigrant bands beat out new trails radiating from the old home. They go on individual initiative or state-directed enterprises, but no matter which. The manifold life in the faraway periphery reacts upon the center to vivify and rejuvenate it. The laws of the territorial growth of peoples and of states are in general the same. The main differences between the two lies in the fact that ethnic expansion, since it depends upon natural increase, is slow, steady, and among civilized peoples is subject to slight fluctuations, while the frontiers of a state, after a long period of permanence, can suddenly be advanced by conquest far beyond the ethnic boundaries, often, however, only to be as quickly lost again. Therefore the important law may be laid down, that the more closely the territorial growth of a state keeps pace with that of its people, and the more nearly the political area coincides with the ethnic, the greater is the strength and stability of the state. This is the explanation of the vigor and permanence of the early English colonies in America. 
the slow westward protrusion of their frontier of continuous settlement within the boundaries of the Allegheny Mountains formed a marked contrast to the wide sweep of French voyager camp and lonely trading station in the Canadian forests, and even more to the handful of priests and soldiers who for three centuries kept an unsteady hold upon the Spanish Empire in the Western Hemisphere. The political advance of the United States across the continent from the Alleghenies to the Mississippi, thence to the Rocky Mountains, and thence to the Pacific was always preceded by bands of enterprising settlers, who planted themselves beyond the frontier and beckoned to the flag to follow. The great empires of antiquity were enlarged mechanically by conquest and annexation. They were mosaics, not growths. The cohesive power of a common ethnic bond was lacking. So was the modern substitute for this to be found in close economic interdependence maintained by improved methods of communication. Hence these empires soon broke up again along lines of old geographic and ethnic cleavage. For Rome, the cementing power of the Mediterranean and the fairly unified civilization which this enclosed sea had been evolving since the dawn of Cretan and Phoenician trade, compensated in part for the lack of common speech and national ideals throughout the political domain. But the empire proved in the end to be merely a mosaic, easily broken. The second point of difference between the expansion of peoples and of states lies in their respective relation to the political frontier. This confines the state like a stockade, fixing the territorial limits of its administrative functions, but for the subjects of the state it is an imaginary line, powerless to check the range of their activities, except when a military or tariff war is going on. The state boundary if it coincides with a strong natural barrier, may for decades or even centuries succeed in confining a growing people, if these, by intelligent economy, increase the productivity of the soil whose area they are unable to extend, yet the time comes even for these when they must break through the barriers and secure more land, either by foreign conquest or colonization. The classic example of the confinement of a people within its political boundaries is the long isolation of Japan from 1624 to 1854. The pent-up forces there accumulated, in a population which had doubled itself in the interval and which by hard schooling was made receptive to every improved economic method, manifest themselves in the insistent demand for more land which has permeated all the recent policy of Japan. But the history of Japan is exceptional. The rule is that the growing people slowly but continually overflow their political boundary, which then advances to cover the successive floodplains of the national inundation, or yet farther to anticipate the next rise. This has been the history of Germany in its progress eastward across the Elbe, the Oder, the Vistula and the Niemann. The dream of a greater empire embraces all the German-speaking people from Switzerland. Tyrol and Sviermark to those outlying groups in the Baltic provinces of Russia and the related offshoot in Holland. See map page 223. Though political boundaries, especially where they coincide with natural barriers, may restrict the territorial growth of a people. On the other hand, political expansion is always a stimulus to a racial expansion, because it opens up more land and makes the conditions of life easier for an increasing people, by relieving congestion in the older areas. More than this, it materially aids while guiding and focusing the outgoing streams of population, thus it keeps them concentrated for the reinforcement of the nation in the form of colonies, and tends to reduce the political evil of indiscriminate emigration, by which the streams are dissipated and diverted to strengthen other nations. Witness the active internal colonization practiced by Germany in her Polish territory, by Russia in Siberia in an effort to make the ethnic boundary hurry after and overtake the political frontier. 
just as the development of a people and state is marked by advance from small to ever larger areas, so is that of a civilization. It may originate in a small district, but more mobile than humanity itself. It does not remain confined to one spot, but passes on from individual to individual and from people to people. Greece served only as a garden in which the flowers of Oriental and Egyptian civilization were temporarily transplanted. As soon as they were modified and adapted to their new conditions, their seeds spread over all Europe. The narrow area of ancient Greece, which caused the early dissemination of its people over the Mediterranean basin, and thereby weakened the political force of the country at home, was an important factor in the wide distribution of its culture, commerce, colonization and war are vehicles of civilization where favorable geographic conditions open the way for trade in the wake of the victorious army. The imposition of Roman dominion meant everywhere the gift of Roman civilization. The crusaders brought back from Syria more than their scars and their trophies. Every European factory in China, every Hudson Bay Company post in the wilds of northern Canada, every Arab settlement in savage Africa is surrounded by a sphere of trade, and this in turn is enclosed in a wider sphere of influence through which its civilization though much diluted, has filtered, the higher the civilization, the wider the area which it masters, the manifold activities of a civilized people demand a large sphere of influence, and include, furthermore, improved means of communication which enable it to control such a sphere, even a relatively low civilization may spread over a vast area if carried by a highly mobile people, Mohammedanism, which embodies a cultural system as well as a religion, found its vehicles of dispersal in the pastoral nomads occupying the arid land of northern Africa and western Asia, and thus spread from the Senegal River to Chinese Turkestan. It was carried by the maritime Arabs of Oman and Yemen to Malacca and Sumatra, where it was communicated to the seafaring Malays. These island folk, who approximate the most highly civilized peoples in their nautical efficiency, distributed the meager elements of Mohammedan civilization over the Malay archipelago. See Map of the Religions of the Eastern Hemisphere. In Chapter XIV, the larger the area which a civilized nation occupies, the more numerous are its points of contact with other peoples, and the less likely is there to be a premature crystallization of its civilization from isolation. Extension of area on a large scale means eventually extension of the seaboard and access to those multiform international relations which the ocean highway confers. The worldwide expansion of the British Empire has given it at every outward step wider oceanic contact and eventually a cosmopolitan civilization. The same thing is true of the other great colonial empires of history, whether Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch or French, and even of the great continental empires, like Russia and the United States. The Russian advance across Siberia, like the American advance across the Rockies, meant access to the Pacific and a modification of its civilization on those remote shores. A large area means varied vicinal locations and hence differentiation of civilization, at least along the frontier. How rapidly the vivifying influences of this contact will penetrate into the bulk of the interior depends upon size, location as scattered or compact, and general geographic conditions like navigable rivers or mountains, which facilitate or bar intercourse with that interior. The Russian Empire has 11 different nations, speaking even more different languages, on its western and southern frontiers, its long line of Asiatic contact will inevitably give to the European civilization transplanted hither in Russian colonies a new and perhaps not unfruitful development. The Siberian citizen of future centuries may compare favorably with his brother in Moscow, Japan, even while impressing its civilization upon the reluctant Koreans, 
will see itself modified by the contact and its culture differentiated by the transplanting, but the content of Japanese civilization will be increased by every new variant thus formed. The larger the area brought under one political control, the less the handicap of internal friction and the greater its economic independence. Vast territory has enabled the United States to maintain with advantage a protective tariff, chiefly because the free trade within its own borders was extensive. The natural law of the territorial growth of states and peoples means an extension of the areas in which peace and cooperation are preserved, a relative reduction of frontiers and of the military forces necessary to defend them, diminution in the sum total of conflicts, and a wider removal of the border battlefields. In place of the continual warfare between petty tribes which prevailed in North America 400 years ago, we have today the peaceful competition of the three great nations which have divided the continent among them. The political unification of the Mediterranean Basin under the Roman Empire restricted wars to the remote land frontiers. The foreign wars of Russia, China, and the United States in the past century have been almost wholly confined to the outskirts of their big domains merely scratching the rim and leaving the great interior sound and undisturbed. Russia's immense area is the military ally on which she can most surely count. The long road to Moscow converted Napoleon's victory into a defeat, and the resistless advance of the Japanese from Port Arthur to the Sungari River led only to a peace robbed of the chief fruits of victory. The numerous wars of the British Empire have been limited to this or that corner, and had scarcely affected the prosperity of the great remainder so that their costs have been readily borne and their wounds rapidly healed. The territorial expansion of peoples and states is attended by an evolution of their spatial conceptions and ideals. Primitive peoples, accustomed to dismemberment in small tribal groups, bear all the marks of territorial contraction. Their geographical horizon is usually fixed by the radius of a few days' march. Inter-tribal trade and intercourse reach only rudimentary development under the prevailing conditions of mutual antagonism and isolation, and hence contribute little to the expansion of the horizon, knowing only their little world. Such primitive groups overestimate the size and importance of their own territory, and are incapable of controlling an extensive area. This is the testimony of all travelers who had observed native African states, though the race or stock distribution may be wide, like that of the Athapascan and Algonquin Indians, and their war paths long like the campaigns of the Iroquois against the Cherokees of the Tennessee River. Yet the unit of tribal territory permanently occupied is never large. Small naturally defined regions, which take the lead in historical development because they counteract the primitive tendency towards excessive dispersal, are in danger of teaching too well their lesson of concentration. In course of time geographic enclosure begins to betray its limitations. The extent of a people's territory influences their estimate of area per southeast determines how far land shall be made the basis of their national purposes, fixes the territorial scale of their conquests and their political expansion. This is a conspicuous psychological effect of a narrow local environment. A people embedded for centuries in a small district measure area with a short yardstick. The ancient Greeks devised a philosophic basis for the advantages of the small state, which is extolled in the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle wanted it small enough to be comprehended at one glance of the statesman's eye. Plato's ideal democracy, by rigid laws limiting the procreative period of women and men and providing for the death of children born out of this period or out of wedlock, restricted its free citizens to 5.040 heads of families, all living within reach of the agora, and all able to judge from personal knowledge of a candidate's fitness for office. 
this condition was possible only in dwarf commonwealths like the city-states of the Hellenic world. The failure of the Greeks to build up a political structure on a territorial scale commensurate with their cultural achievements and with the wide sphere of their cultural influence can be ascribed chiefly to their inability to discard the contracted territorial ideas engendered by geographic and political dismemberment. The Little Judean Plateau, which gave birth to a universal religion, clung with provincial bigotry to the narrow tribal creed and repudiated the larger faith of Christ, which found its appropriate field in Mediterranean Europe. Maritime peoples of small geographic base have a characteristic method of expansion which reflects their low valuation of area. Their limited amount of arable soil necessitates reliance upon foreign sources of supply, which are secured by commerce. Hence they found trading stations or towns among alien peoples on distant coasts, selecting points like capes or inshore islets which can be easily defended and which at the same time command inland or maritime routes of trade. The prime geographic consideration is location, natural and vicinal. The area of the trading settlement is kept as small as possible to answer its immediate purpose, because it can be more easily defended. Such were the colonies of the ancient Phoenicians and Greeks in the Mediterranean, of the medieval Arabs and the Portuguese on the east coast of Africa and in India. This method reached its ultimate expression in point of small area, seclusion, and local autonomy, perhaps in the hands factories in Norway and Russia, but all these widespread nuclei of expansion remain barren of permanent national result, because they were designed for a commercial end, and ignored the larger national mission and sure economic base found in acquisition of territory, hence they were short-lived, succumbing to attack or abandoned on the failure of local resources, which were ruthlessly exploited. That precocious development characteristic of small naturally defined areas shows its inherent weakness in the tendency to accept the enclosed area as a nature-made standard of national territory. The earlier a state fixes its frontier without allowance for growth, the earlier comes the cessation of its development. Therefore the geographical nurseries of civilization were infected with germs of decay. Such was the history of Egypt, of Yemen, of Greece, Crete, and Phoenicia. These are the regions which as Carl Ritter says, have given the whole fruit of their existence to the world for its future use, have conferred upon the world the trust which they once held, afterward to recede, as it were, from view. They were great in the past, and now they belong to those immortal dead whose greatness has been incorporated in the world's life, the choir invisible, of the nations, the advance from a small, self-dependent community to interdependent relations with other peoples then to ethnic expansion or union of groups to form a state or empire is a great turning point in any history, thereby the clan or tribe discards the old paralyzing seclusion of the primitive society and the narrow habitat, and joins that march of ethnic, political and cultural progress which has covered larger and larger areas, and by increase of common purpose has cemented together ever greater aggregates. Nothing is more significant in the history of the English in America than the rapid evolution of their spatial ideals. Their abandonment of the small territorial conception brought with them from the mother country and embodied, for example, in that munificent land grant, 50 by 100 miles in extent, of the first Virginia Charter in 1606, and their progress to schemes of continental expansion. Every accession of territory to the 13 colonies and to the Republic gave an impulse to growth. Expansion kept pace with opportunity. Only in small and isolated New England did the contracted provincial point of view persist. It manifested itself in a narrow policy of concentration and curtailment, 
which acquiesced in the occlusion of the Mississippi River to the Trans-Allegheny Settlements by Spain in 1787, and which later opposed the purchase of the Louisiana Territory and the acquisition of the Philippines. All peoples who had achieved wide expansion have developed in the process vast territorial policies. This is true of the pastoral nomads who in different epochs had inundated Europe, Northern Africa and the peripheral lands of Asia, and of the great colonial nations who in a few decades had brought continents under their dominion. In nomadic hordes it is based upon habitual mobility and the possession of herds, which are at once incentive and means for extending the geographical horizon, but it suffers from the evanescent character of nomadic political organization, and the tendency toward dismemberment bred in all pastoral life by dispersal over scattered grazing grounds. Hence the empires set up by nomad conquerors like the Saracens and Tartars soon fall apart, among highly civilized agricultural and industrial peoples. On the other hand, a vast territorial policy is at once cause and effect of national growth, it is at once an innate tendency and a conscious purpose tenaciously followed, it makes use of trade and diplomacy, of scientific invention and technical improvement, to achieve its aims, it becomes an accepted mark of political vigor and an ideal even among peoples who have failed to enlarge their narrow base, the model of Russian expansion on the Pacific was quickly followed by awakened Japan. Stirred out of her insular complacence by the threat of Muscovite encroachment, Germany and Italy, each strengthened and enlarged as to national outlet by recent political unification, had elbowed their way into the crowded colonial field. The French, though not expansionists as individuals, had an excellent capacity for collective action when directed by government. The officials whom Louis XIV sent to Canada in the 17th century executed large schemes of empire reflecting the dilation of French frontiers in Europe. These ideals of expansion seem to have been communicated by the power of example, or the threat of danger in them, to the English colonists in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and later to Washington and Jefferson, the best type of colonial expansion.